This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. A bit later in the hour, we'll take you on a trip to the Great Salt Lake and meet a scientist trying to save it. Yep, it is drying up. Plus, we'll be talking about new research that links black holes and dark energy. And we'll, answering, we'll be answering your, yeah, I gotta know. I gotta know questions about black holes in cosmology. So if you've got them, tell us about them. Our number, 844-724-8255, 844-SCI-TALK, or you can tweet us at SciFry. But first, this week's researchers have unveiled a new superconductor, a superconductor which they say works at room temperature. Scientists have been working on identifying new superconductors for decades, materials which can transmit electricity without pesky friction-like resistance. And the ones discovered in the past only work at super cold temperatures, so this would make this material much more useful in applications like strong magnets used in MRIs, magnetically floating trains, even even nuclear fusion. But there is a bit of a wrinkle, and Sophie Bushwick is here to iron it all out. See what I did there, Sophie? <laughs> Sophie Bushwick is the technology editor at Scientific American. She's here with me in our studios in New York. Welcome back, Sophie. Thanks. It's great to be here. Let's, and I'm really excited to be talking about this topic. I think it's very interesting. Well, let's get right into it. First, tell us what superconductivity is. So superconductivity uh, is when electricity can travel through a material without losing any of its energy in the form of heat. So it's 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 imagine if you had a wire carrying electricity, say, in a power grid across the country. Right. As it moves, the wire is going to heat up a little bit. It's going to shed some of this energy in the form of heat. And if you had a su- that wire made out of a superconducting material, it would have zero energy loss. And so you can imagine more efficient energy transmission, but also, you know, a computer that never overheats. And because of superconductors are they, they exhibit some weird behavior, including pushing out magnetic fields. Ooh. So if you've ever seen an experiment or performed an experiment where you have a magnet levitating above a superconductor, that's a result of that uh, phenomenon. Cool. Yes, I have done that yes. a couple of times. All right. So what's exciting about this news then? So this news is exciting because to get a superconductor to work, you've got to have it in extremely controlled conditions. It's either so there's some materials that can be superconducting when they're chilled to very low temperatures, uh, and there's others that can be superconducting at room temperature, but you have to squeeze them in this vice-like device called a diamond anvil that raises the pressure around them to, you know, uh, roughly a quarter or half of the pressure found at the center of the earth. Oh. Right. So it's not super practical for building, you know, train right. tracks for a maglev train out of this stuff. So this new material is interesting because not only is it working at room temperature, but it's it's supposed to be working at a pressure that's not quite room pressure, but it's uh it's like 100 times less pressure than is required for other materials like this. Mm-hmm. And it's at room temperature, right? That's, that's right. A, that's an important thing. Yes, that's definitely an important thing as well. Mhm. Uh, but I said there's there's a wrinkle here. There's some controversy about the researchers who did this. That's right. So the research team that did th- that that put this out had previously published a study about a different superconducting material that worked at room temperature, and that was published in 2020 in Nature. But um, other researchers in the superconductivity community started pointing out problems with the data that had to do with for a lot of these measurements. When you take the measurement, you can't just 
have used the raw data because there's all this background noise. So you have to measure the background noise, measure the signal from this superconducting sample, and then subtract out the background. And they said that there's some discrepancies here in this process that don't make sense. And as a result of a lot of back and forth between these researchers, Nature retracted that paper. And that's not the only paper to have weird issues with the data from the same these same researchers. So for that reason, there are people in the superconductivity community who are saying right. we're not necessarily going to trust these results on face value. And, and you talked to them. What did they say it would take to trust these results? So they think it would take replication, which is something that the authors also say they want. The idea that another lab not affiliated with this one could try to make the same material, test it for superconductivity, and find the same results. So replication is what would it would take to make them as excited as the authors are. Uh, you know, it reminds me a little bit, just a little bit of cold fusion back back in the day, <laughs> where you could not replicate the results. People couldn't do it, but this, right. this, they, might, they might be able to, right? They might. And also, this isn't that this isn't unique to this particular study. So back in the 80s, there was the discovery of superconductors that still had to be chilled, but not to quite as low temperatures. And the researchers who published the paper on it, for the, about the first six months after they published the paper, there wasn't a ton of excitement. It was only when those results were replicated that people were like, wow, I think you're really onto something here. And the original researchers eventually won a Nobel Prize for wow. it. Wow. I'm tempted to say that's really cool, but I'll try to, <laughs> I'll try to stay It with. is literally and <laughs> metaphorically cool. Thank you for bailing me out. There's another story getting a lot of uh, buzz this week. Uh, Speaking of dad jokes, bumblebees. Bumblebees are capable of creating and transmitting culture. Tell us about that. Right. So we think of culture as something humans have. But if you define culture the way scientists do, which is socially learning a behavior within a population, then they've actually demonstrated this in a bunch of different species. And now they've demonstrated it in bumblebees. So the way the thing that they wanted to transmit was the ability to solve this puzzle box. Mm -hmm. It's this kind of cool apparatus where there's this sugar solution under a lid. And in order to access it, you can push either a red tab in one direction or a blue tab in another. And then they took some bees from different colonies and taught them how to solve it in a specific way, either the red tab method or the blue tab method. And then they put them back in their hives. And sure enough, the bees that knew how to do it taught the other bees in their colony, but they taught them the specific method they'd learned. So even though either method would work, the bees in a colony that had learned to do the blue tab method would do the blue tab method. And if they accidentally did the red tab method and it worked, yeah. they wouldn't necessarily pick that up. They might do Whoa. it and solve it, but then they would go back to the blue tab way that they knew their culturally chosen way. Why, why would we, yeah, well, let's talk about the definition of culture. Why do we call this culture that the bees have culture? Well, we have to talk about, if you're trying to define something like culture, which is such a broad category, and you're a scientist, you're like, well, let's give this a good definition. So it's a, a socially learned behavior, right? They learned it from the demonstrator bees that had been trained. Right. And it was used within this set population. So it was used within the population of the specific colony. If you went to another colony that had learned from a different demonstrator B, they would do that method instead. So you can mm -hmm. see, think of these colonies as having different cultures when it comes to solving this puzzle box. And you know, that doesn't sound so weird because bees live in big colonies. Like the ants live in colonies. You'd think there is a culture. Absolutely. That's developing, right? Right. And there's also more complex communication than we would have expected. So not bumblebees, but honeybees do a, a dance called the waggle dance where they can teach other, uh, other members of the colony where to find a source of nectar. So it's clear that what's going on among animals is 
communication and learning that's more complex than we used to think they were capable of, which kind of, you know, makes you think that all the things we think of, oh, well, only humans can do this. Eh, it turns yeah. out in a lot of ways we're not so special. They have some culture. Yes, they do. <laughs> <laughs> this next story raises uh, more questions than it answers. I'm talking about a new analysis into tree rings shows that what scientists one thought once thought were solar flares might actually be caught they're caused by something else. Tell us about it. What do we know about what's going on here? This is super cool. So trees absorb carbon dioxide, as we know, but sometimes a teeny, teeny tiny fraction of the carbon that they take in is a radioactive isotope of carbon. And that uh, th- those radioactive uh, molecules are, are formed from sometimes from... Uh, uh, humans doing our human thing, mm-hmm. you know, testing nuclear power or weapons. But sometimes it comes from cosmic radiation, which we think of as coming from like big solar flares right. from the sun. Right. And if you look at the historical record preserved in tree rings, you can see where historically there were big solar flares. But when researchers started studying these events called Miyake events, they think that they could also be caused by things like maybe a comet passing by, maybe a far-off neutron star, or even a supernova. So so I guess to sum it up then, they're, they're not quite sure. They're not quite sure. The mystery continues, oh, uh, but that. it's a fascinating topic Scientists of study. Scientists love that. Yeah. Uh, your next story you brought us is about some unexpected solutions to a problem we've talked about quite a bit on the show, and that's melting mountain glaciers. Your colleagues at Scientific American, Amanda Ruggeri, She uh, wrote about some extreme measures to save glaciers. Tell us about some of these measures. They sound very good. Go ahead. Some of this is a little little (laughs) out there, right? So one idea is just making extra snow. Cover those glaciers with a little extra snow, help replenish them. Um, The problem is, of course, it takes energy to make snow and it takes water. So researchers are developing snow-making methods that rely more on things like gravity to help the process along and make them less... Uh, energy intensive. But another option is just take some white paint, paint some rocks, <laughs> have those rocks reflect the sunlight back into the sky. Cheap. It's Cheap. get enough paint, right? Right. But, you know, not as effective as, say, what if you could cover the whole gl- glacier in a big white blanket that would insulate it from the sun and reflect those rays away? You know, there, were the, there, was, a, there was a team of uh, Christo and Jean-Claude. They were artists back in the day. They, they covered buildings and the work of art with big sheets and stuff. They're not among us now, but they, that would fit right in for what they were doing. <laughs> Absolutely. But, of course, there, the problem is that glaciers are big. Even shrinking, these glaciers are still very, very large. It would take, you know, more than a billion dollars to cover just the thousand uh, largest glaciers yeah. in Switzerland with blankets like these. So, right. again, that's more appropriate for sort of small areas as opposed to big ones. Finally, let's end uh, with some fun fact you'll, uh, you'll be sure you want to share over the weekend with friends. Scientists identified the worms you sometimes find in a bottle of mezcal. That's right. They did a genetic analysis of the quote-unquote worms found in uh, 21 different bottles. And I say quote-unquote because they're not actually <laughs> they're worms. They're not worms. They're not. What are they? They are the larvae of a moth. And these are ca- they're called, unfortunately, I, I'm going to contradict myself here, they're, uh, the name of the larva colloquially is the red agave worm. Mm-hmm. So people call them that. But they are not worms. They are moth larvae. And in fact, they turn into cream-colored moths once they reach adulthood. So the red color is only in their larval state. How, how do they discovered this? Well, they were sitting around a bar and they said, you know, I wonder. <laughs> and then they grabbed, you know, they grabbed some bottles of, of, of mezcal and they decided to do genetic testing on the uh, on the 
on the larva inside. And some of them they couldn't genetic test. They had actually been baked before they were put into the bottle. Oh. So those they just had to look at and say, well, can we identify the characteristics and the physical uh, traits of this of this insect that could help us tell us what it is? I wonder if this idea came before or after drinking a couple of margaritas on the weekend. <laughs> I think we'll never know. It's another mystery of science. Something we have to perform on our own. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Sophie. Thanks for having me. Sophie Bushwick, technology editor at Scientific American based in New York. We have to take a short break, and when we come back, the Great Salt Lake is in trouble. It's drying up. Can anything be done? We're going to take a road trip, so stay with us. We'll be right back after this break. Hey there, podcast listeners. Ira here with a simple request. If you're listening to this podcast, learning something, enjoying yourself, please go to sciencefriday.com support to make a donation. Our work and this podcast depends on public support from listeners like you. You know that. You're here listening, which means you find our programming valuable. Any amount makes a difference, even two bucks. But the lasting gifts are the ones we can count on, sustaining donations which we can rely on every year. So please go to sciencefriday.com support to make your gift. Again, that's sciencefriday.com slash support. And thanks. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. Utah's Great Salt Lake is one of the state's treasures and is vital to the local ecosystem and economy. But since the 1980s, the lake's water level has declined to a record low, leaving large parts of the lake bed exposed to the air and the region's wildlife disappearing. Yet despite its bleak current state, local scientists and politicians are cautiously optimistic about the lake's future, meaning that if the right efforts are put in place, the lake still might have a chance to bounce back. Here's digital producer Emma Gomez talking to one of the scientists trying to save the Great Salt Lake. Cody. Cody. Just making its way up the mountain. Just being a little coyote. At a lookout point above the Great Salt Lake... I saw a few bison, high-flying birds, and tiny coyotes living by the surrounding mountain range that looked straight out of Lord of the Rings. But one thing that I couldn't get out of my head was just how quiet it was. For some people more familiar with the lake, its silence is a newer development. It was only when I started studying it in detail that I realized what an absolute gem an oasis in the desert this place actually is for wildlife, for serenity, for recreation. And the thought that uh, we're at the cusp of losing this vital ecosystem in this absolutely wonderful place just makes me really sad. We visited Dr. Kevin Perry on a brisk January morning on the lake. He's a professor of atmospheric sciences at the University of Utah, and he's been studying the Great Salt Lake for seven years. The lake has undergone a dramatic transformation in the last century. It used to be home to millions of migratory birds, herds of large herbivores, and insects. But one thing that it noticeably doesn't have anymore is an abundance of water. As I squinted out into the distance over a lookout point, I could catch a glimpse of the lake's waterline, hundreds of meters beyond the shore. If the lake was full, it would be teeming with life. But the exposed lake bed was dry cracking in the cold January air. It would have been truly a magical place. As the lake's water level has diminished for the last three decades, so has the ecosystem. 
Science Friday producer Dee Peterschmidt and I walked to the original shoreline of the lake, where we were met with what seemed like miles of dry sediment mounds that resembled a dead coral reef. Perry told us they used to be microbialite communities, which are habitats made by microbes that fed the millions of brine flies and brine shrimp native to the lake. Since at the moment we were standing on dry land, we had to take his word for it. 30 years ago, you were standing here right now, the water would be about uh, six feet over your head. (laughs) Although climate change and drought are a factor in the lake's desiccation, Perry says there's more at play. So people are always asking me, is the lake shrinking because of climate change or because of the mega drought? And uh, the answer is actually no. The Great Salt Lake is fed by three rivers, and those rivers are fed by the snowpack on the surrounding mountains. It's also a terminal lake, meaning there's no outlet for water to exit. So if the lake's water sources are cut off, then it's at risk for shrinkage, which is exactly what's happened. Local residents, industry, and agriculture all rely on these snowpack-fed rivers for water, agriculture making up 87% of that usage. And as the population of Utah increases, more water has been diverted for those purposes. You know, we're the second driest state uh, in the United States, and we use water like we have an endless supply. And uh, we're facing the consequences of those decisions that we've made now The wildlife biologists have been sounding the alarm about the shrinking Great Salt Lake for, you know, more than 20 years. And it didn't resonate with the public. But that changed when the dust plume started. As the water has receded, the wind has picked up dust from the exposed lake bed and blown it into the local communities, made up of two million residents. When dust plumes come off the lake, it reduces the horizontal visibility to less than a mile, and you see this this wall of dust coming. And people had to go wash their cars because of the amount of dust that was depositing on their cars. And they could see it in their gardens and on their decks, and they were wondering what it is that we were actually breathing. Seven years ago, Perry got funding to study what exactly was in that dust. But he isn't the type to just sit around and wait for a plume to come his way. I'm just not that patient. So what I decided to do was to go out onto the lake bed using a fat tire bike and actually collect soil samples. I ended up riding more than 2,300 miles on the bike to sample all 800 square miles of the lake bed. And Perry discovered something concerning about the composition of the soil. Every single measurement that I took had higher arsenic concentrations than would be recommended by the EPA. As we walked onto the lake bed with Perry, he squinted at the ground and started kicking at the crusty surface. I think you're going to be able to get some dust here. <laughs> so if it, if it wasn't frozen... You could kick that and you'd generate a dust plume, basically. Researchers like Perry have been sharing their findings with the public and raising awareness about the shrinking lake's effects. They've become part-time advocates for the lake, calling up legislators, appearing on local media and holding educational seminars. As the surface area of the exposed lake bed grows, local residents have become concerned about what might be in the lake's dust. To what extent is this elevated level of arsenic harmful to people and local crops? That's unknown. Researchers are working to answer those questions. But the shrinking water levels, the collapsing ecosystem, the dust plumes, the heavy metals in the soil, all of this— has spurred Utahns to call up their politicians and express their concerns. And the legislators have listened. Multiple bills are moving through the state Senate to address the lake's issues. And after Utah's governor, Spencer Cox, surveyed the area, he said, quote, 
On my watch, we are not allowing the lake to go dry. Late last year, President Biden signed a federal bill for $25 million that will go towards researching local Great Basin saline lake hydrology and other conservation efforts, thanks to sponsorship by Representative Blake Moore and Senator Mitt Romney. The beautiful thing is that the lake is a nonpartisan issue. It affects everyone in northern Utah and beyond. And because most of the state's water is being used by agriculture, lake advocates have been engaged with those local stakeholders. An Agriculture Water Optimization Task Force was assembled, and grant funding has been allocated to independent farmers to use less water. But is all this enough to save the Great Salt Lake before it dries up? Brigham Young University estimates that if the current rate of water loss continues, the lake will disappear in five years. And the lake has already crossed several tipping points that have fundamentally changed the current ecosystem. And we're nearing the last and final tipping point which is the salinity tipping point. As the lake gets drier, it becomes saltier, meaning that if the lake passes a certain level of salinity, it will become too salty to support even its most salt-loving wildlife, like brine shrimp. Brine shrimp and brine flies are at the base of the Great Salt Lake's food chain. So hitting this salinity tipping point could mean food chain collapse. Despite the challenges, Perry remains hopeful. Now that there's a uh, groundswell of support for saving the Great Salt Lake, I'm cautiously optimistic that we can change our behavior. Uh, We got into the situation from decisions that we made on how we use our water, which means that we can alter our decision-making process and we can actually turn this around. For Science Friday, I'm Emma Gomez. Thank you, Emma. If you want to read about how scientists are working together with politicians and community members to save the lake and see photos from our trip, read Emma's full article at sciencefriday.com slash saltlake. Black holes remain one of the great mysteries of the universe. Another great mystery, dark energy. Little is known about this aside from the belief that dark energy accelerates the expansion of the universe. And these two are among the most mind-bending observations of our universe. Now let's ratchet up the mystery just a bit more because there's a new theory that brings together black holes and dark energy. Research led by the University of Hawaii posits that dark energy could actually come from supermassive black holes at the center of galaxies. And if this is true, this would be a massive breakthrough in what we know about astrophysics. But many experts in the field have reservations about this idea. So joining me to help analyze this theory and other black hole news are my guests, Dr. Jana Levin, author of Black Hole Blues and Black Hole Survival Guide. She's also a physics and astronomy professor at Barnard College in New York. And Dr. Ferial Ozell, professor and chair of physics at Georgia Institute of Technology in Atlanta. Welcome back, both of you, to Science Friday. Always good to be here. Nice to have you. (laughs) I want to invite our listeners to join the questioning about black holes, dark energy, other cosmic thoughts within limits. Not everything. It's not too wacky, but here's our number, 844-724-8255, 844-SCI-TALK. You can tweet us at SciFry if you have questions about black holes or any of this kind of stuff we're talking about. Uh, Jana, let's talk about this new theory, this idea that dark energy may come from supermassive black holes. Explain that idea to us. So I, I do think the idea is quite contentious, but I find it really interesting. A lot of ideas live and die on the page and get bashed out this way. So the idea is that interior to a black hole 
we don't fully understand the physics there, so maybe we can play a game like sew a different kind of a space-time on the interior of a black hole. And one possibility is that we imagine, almost like building a quilt, that we could sew together this universe interior to the black hole, which is dominated by dark energy. And it can be smoothly sewn together mathematically. That's not the Uh. same as saying that nature makes such a thing. And, And would this solve a problem? If this was true. That alone doesn't necessarily solve any problems. There's still more steps. So the idea of connecting it to the dark energy, you have to then couple the black hole to the entire expansion of the universe. And the idea would be these black holes are little nuggets of dark energy. And if I average them together across the whole universe and I connect the way the black holes evolve with that expansion, that I get a combo. I get a little black holes plus dark energy as a, a sort of a bonus. <laughs> would, would, this, would this sort of serve as the source of where the dark energy is? That's the idea that maybe the dark energy all along has been hiding in the interiors of these black holes. And we've just, we've been looking for it exterior. We've been looking for it as this diffuse background that's everywhere and uh, dominates the energy density of the universe, but maybe it's actually locked in the interiors of black holes is the idea. And that the black hole's masses grow with the expansion of the universe, not just by acquiring matter and stars and merging, which is how we think of black holes growing and accumulating mass, but maybe its mass simply grows because it is tied to this dark energy and expansion of the universe. Cool. Uh, Faryal, what's your take on this theory? Well, I can see the motivation behind it for sure. Um, There are certain problems with black holes that we will all acknowledge um, and the authors use as motivation uh, for their work. Um, It's interesting to try and solve the problems of the magnitude of the dark energy and um, how we still don't have a solution for spinning black holes and how they match to an expanding universe with effectively killing two birds with one stone, um, connecting the two and speculating that uh, black holes are just basically vacuum condensates the way that Jana was describing. But on the observational front, I think there are problems with what the study is putting forth. Um, So theoretically an interesting idea, but um, I'm I'm on the side. I I got to press you on it. What do you mean on the observational side? What's What's the problem here? Sure. Um, so what, what our current understanding of black holes is that they grow from normal matter. And they grow, for example, when um, stars die and, and collapse into black holes and then accrue matter from their environments, like gas and other stars and maybe merge with other black holes. And we think that this has something to do with how galaxies are growing as well, in the sense that there is a symbiotic relationship there. Uh, both both grow from early on in the universe. They seem to grow roughly in tandem, but roughly is the key word here. Mm-hmm. So we don't expect a one-to-one uh, relationship between how a black hole grows and how the galaxy grows. So what the authors are doing is looking at supermassive black holes in, in a survey of galaxies at the centers of galaxies And they're saying, look, the galaxies have not grown much over the time period that we are surveying, but the black holes have. So as a result, they must have another way of growing. 
And then they're speculating how the black hole growth relates to the expansion of the universe. And they're finding that that theory is favored compared to black holes growing from just gas and stars. I see. I so see. if there are, there are two speculations here. And if you make two speculations, it's easy to see how you would, you would find a theory that, or, or some data that better matches one over the other. Let me just jump in and say this is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Sorry, that's how I... <laughs> for, for, go ahead, Fariel. Finish your, finish your thought, yes. please. No, no, I, I think... Um, so they like want... They, they, said, they, like, they just... Are, are they taking... Um, I hate to say a quantum leap here, you know, in, in, in logic? Yeah. Well, I think the... Janet? I think the observation that they're referencing is that here are these very old galaxies with these very big supermassive black holes in their interiors and not a lot of gust, like gas and dust to absorb. So why are their masses growing so much? Their, their observation was essentially that the mass of the black hole seemed to have grown by seven to 10 times, even though it wasn't consuming ordinary matter. Mm -hmm. So how else could it grow? And their argument was, well, it's really growing because it's linked in this way to the expansion of the universe and the dark energy. I, 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 and and yeah. that's a, that is a leap. If you're asking, is it a leap? It's a leap. Now, I'm all for making leaps and seeing how they pan out. <laughs> Do we need more observational evidence? Absolutely. What, what kind of stuff would you be looking for? Well, you have to look for more galaxies yeah. that have this behavior, and the big surveys are a good way to go. So you start to see if you have an aberrant case that looks very odd. Um, but you also can look at more greater details of the light coming from the galaxies to see if you can yeah. find some evidence of matter being uh, taken down that you missed the first time around. For y'all, in, in the minute before the break, uh, would this change our whole view of the universe? Would we have to change our view if this is correct? It, it would. I mean, basically, it's saying black holes aren't really black holes, that they don't have horizons, they don't have singularities. Um, they are basically condensates of this vacuum energy. And because of that, actually, um, I think there is a better way to probe this theory observationally than looking at black hole growth or looking at galaxies. And that's looking at the immediate horizon environments of black holes and making precision tests. Because what we call black holes now um, versus these uh, vacuum condensates actually behave differently just outside of their horizon. It's a small difference, but wow. for spinning black holes, it's real. And uh, observatories like LISA um, and uh, even maybe the Event Horizon Telescope could give us those better precision tests. That is amazing. We'll have to come back. We are going to come back and talk more with uh, Dr. Jana Levin and Ferial Ozel. If you have a question you'd like to ask us, 844-724-8255, 844-SCI-TALK, or tweet us at SciFry. More on black holes and dark energy after the break. Stay with us. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. We're continuing our conversation about black holes and dark energy and what you would like to know about cosmology with my guest, Dr. Jana Levin, author of Black Hole Survival Guide, Dr. Filial Ozell, professor and chair of physics at Georgia Institute of Technology in Atlanta. Our number 844-724-8255. As you can imagine, lots of folks would like to get in on the conversation. So let's go to them right now. Hi, Imran in Houston. Welcome to Science Friday. Thank you so much. Um, my question is actually, the, this new theory says that 
dark energy could be coming from black holes. Now, dark energy expands the universe, and black holes pulls everything in. Even light cannot escape it. So how can someone that expands the universe be coming from something that only pulls? I mean, it's like saying black is coming from white. Do you understand? Like the, yeah, the, yeah, I, I hear understand. you. Uh, Jenny, can you so that's, tie yeah. that knot? Yeah, I mean, I do think that this is a contentious um, suggestion, but I'll do my best by the authors. I think that the idea is that, yes, black holes act like regular matter, and that causes space-time to contract. But dark energy is just a form of energy in the universe, and if the black hole traps in its interior this sort of dark energy, or if, as um, was previously expressed, they're, they're kind of just those nuggets of dark energy, then that part of the system would cause the universe to expand. But you have to average. It's almost as though you have these little pools of dark energy all over the universe, and you have to kind of average over all of them, which we're accustomed to thinking about, and ask what is the global consequence of all of those interiors, and they would in fact have the huh. effect of causing the universe to expand faster. So Ferial, is, is so the black holes are just sucking up little pools of dark energy here? I'm visualizing it in a slightly different way. It actually still requires a form of energy, for example, a field of some sort to exist everywhere in the universe. And it speculates that black holes are some condensates of these, like so some collapsed versions where, like Jana was just explaining, there is this, there are these little pools of it um, that have uh, collapsed into what we are now calling black holes, even though they are actually not black holes. They're just condensates of this different form of energy. So let's just be clear. This theory still requires that there is something extra that is causing the, these condensates and the expansion of the universe to happen. The difference is that it's linking it. Mm. We say um, in, the, in the standard astrophysical understanding that black holes are formed from standard matter, and maybe there's a cosmological constant or some, or some vacuum field out there that's causing the expansion. So this, this theory is actually trying to link the two and saying, no, well, I can take that field, speculate that it condenses into these little pools, and when I average over the large scales, like Jana was just saying, then it gives me the expansion, uh, the accelerated expansion of the universe. It's also interesting that the black hole we usually imagine as being uh, fixed on the outside, but it can be quite big and different on the inside. And in some ways, you know, black holes can be bigger on the inside than they are on the outside. The authors are kind of playing with that idea, but they're allowing the black holes to actually increase as their interiors expand. And so they are different kinds of objects, as mm. Fariel was saying. But doing, the idea of doing away they with are. the event horizons, isn't that a central concept well, that's, of black holes? It's essential up to a point in the sense that we, we're very confident in how black holes behave in trapping light. But do they 100%? Are they full-blown event horizons? Or are they just sort of trapped surfaces that are uh, a little looser in their rules of gatekeeping? I mean, those are things that we don't have as much direct right. observation to confirm. Right. Okay, let's go. Because so many people are interested in this. You, you would think they have, you know, other interests, but they don't. Let's go to <laughs> Dee in Boulder Creek, California. Hi, Dee. Hello? Hi there. Go ahead. 
Uh, yeah, I, uh, thank you. Uh, maybe we're looking at the problem wrong. We, rather than the universe is expanding, the universe is contracting down into each and every massive black hole, and it just appears to be expanding. Mm. Janet. Well, I think that we would notice the difference in in the sense that we are saying the universe is expanding because we are actually seeing things go further away from us in all directions. And the supposition is that if you went to a different galaxy in a different part of the universe, that you would see the same thing, that there's nothing special right. about our position. And the whole thing is, in fact, getting larger. If things were coming towards us, let's say collapsing towards our Milky Way and the black hole in the center, everything would look bluer. It would look hotter. And uh, and that's exactly the opposite. What we see, in fact, is that things look redder and cooler, like they're moving away from us. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple of here's a couple of tweets we have and, and and a call about the same question. I'll just go to Jonathan in San Rafael who tweets: Does dark matter fall into black holes? I mean, we're talking. There's a difference between dark energy and dark matter. Uh, Freyal? Yes, indeed, um, dark matter should be falling into black holes, but. Um, centers of galaxies where these supermassive black holes reside are actually poor in dark matter. Uh, the dark matter halos are uh, more prominent in the outskirts of galaxies. So there is some contribution, as far as we understand, to growth of black holes from, from dark matter, but it's not the prominent way in which they grow. There is far more just normal, regular, luminous matter that makes up the centers of galaxies. Hmm. And here's a tweet uh, from D.P. Coastie who says, Would the world be a better place if we called black holes black spheres instead? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm not sure how that that improves the world. Um, You know, not all black holes are perfectly spherical. We were talking about spinning black holes earlier. Very all mentioned them. And they're not, strictly speaking, spherical. They get a little oblate. And by them, we don't really mean that there's anything there. I really want to emphasize black holes in the conventional thinking are completely empty space. There is nothing there. When we say they are spheres, what we really mean is that region beyond which you can no longer escape, that horizon, is spherical in shape. But it's empty space. You've just blown my mind again. Every time we talk about there's nothing there. If it's sucking stuff in, where does it go? If all that stuff is nothing. I'll go ahead. Let's be clear, though. There, there is a singularity at the center, right? I mean, there is that infinite energy density, but we, we don't really associate it with a location. It's just within that horizon, within that uh, region that we have no information access to, uh, there is a singularity that, that has formed, and it is uh, of infinite energy density. So um, there is really nothing there. It's not like we, we could describe the structure of it. Uh, it's just weird space-time within that mm. horizon. Um, but, yeah, mm. but there's but to, energy there. To be clear, when we talk about like the spherical of a non-spinning black hole, we are talking well outside the singularity, and we are just assigning a size spatially. We say a black hole the size of the sun would be six kilometers, the mass of the sun would be six kilometers across. What we're referring to is that horizon, that shadow. And at that shadow Absolutely. is empty space. yeah. Yeah. Well, yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. And in fact, if you were falling into it, you wouldn't know that you've gone through anything special. Nothing. Yeah, it would be quite unspectacular. There's literally a principle called no yeah. drama. 
No drama. <laughs> <laughs> that there should be no drama at the event horizon. Seems like an oxymoron in physics. <laughs> let's go, speaking of which, let's go to Jason in Pennsylvania. Hi, Jason. Hi. Are um, the the rotation of of the galaxy? How is that determined? Like on Earth, the rotation of a hurricane, you know, is determined by the Coriolis effect. But what what determines the rotation? Uh, the of the stars around a black hole. Mm. For y'all, what what yeah what the, is it a North Pole or a South Pole? You know. Oh well, uh, it's angular momentum actually, um, because most um, most matter particles possess not just a speed but also a a, a direction in which uh, they rotate. So our entire galaxy is rotating around its, its what we call its spin axis because it has angular momentum uh, just associated with its formation. And the very center parts of the galaxy also have an angular momentum and we can see this in the motions of stars that are circling around. And we actually don't know if the black hole rotates in the same direction, same sense as the stars around it. It would make sense that it does because it's, it, I mean, in the, again, in the standard theory, not in, not in the dark energy theory, um, it grows from this matter that it that it's, uh, sucks up from the stars around it. So it should have the same handedness. But if this changes over time, then maybe it doesn't have to be aligned. Hope that answers your question, Jason. Well, I, is there a pattern to it among galaxies within, like in the universe, like in different regions? Are they? Yeah. Is it? Yeah. I mean, do you they're see? Pro- does it predominate? It- if that's the question, yes. they're not all. It's quite randomized, but it's more like imagine a bunch of ice skaters on the ice, pulling their arms in and spinning faster, or or better, imagine spinning pizza dough. It flattens out like a lot of the galaxies that are flat and spinning and spiral galaxies. But there is no cohesion amongst all the different galaxies in that they're mm. not all rotating the same way. Thank you, Jason. Uh, uh, let me ask this question. Last month, astronomers looked at data from the Webb Telescope, and they found six huge galaxies. We, we talked about that on this show. In fact, they, they were too big for their age, and that was the big mystery. It's still a mystery. Uh, how big of a deal is this, Janet? Oh, I think it's quite fascinating, actually, but it's a problem that's existed for a while. These galaxies are between 500 million, 700 million years old. They're really young in the scheme of a 14 billion year old universe, and yet they seem very heavy. And um, and so the question was, is all of that mass or all of the, the luminosity they're seeing in, in stars? Because how did they make all these stars so fast? Uh, in such a short time. And, you know, we it might be that actually part of what they're seeing is really a supermassive black hole at the center that's very luminous and that they don't have to make all these stars very quickly. But then you're just transferring the question to why do we have such huge supermassive black holes so early in the universe's history? They're not forming from the death state of stars. Wow. They're forming some other way. And wow. we, we pretty are co- pretty confident that this supermassive black holes are simply a different channel than the black holes we're used to thinking about. Let me think about that as we go to our, <laughs> as I mentioned, this well, is Science Friday. Hang, hang on a second, Furiel, I gotta get this we have to pay the bills. Yes, this is Science Friday from WNYC <laughs> Studios. Okay, now please jump in. Okay, I actually wanted to tie that question back to 
our, our initial discussion of how do black holes grow? How does it relate to the growth of stars and galaxies? And this is a perennial problem. Um, we don't quite understand how galaxies grow. This uh, study that you're referring to from JWST about how did these galaxies become so big so early? We have the same problem with black holes. Um, how do they, some of them are 10 billion solar masses in 700 million years. How did that happen? So I think it's a folly to think that we actually truly understand how black holes and galaxies grow and how they relate to one another. And that's why I was uh, thinking about the dark, dark energy idea for black holes, that really we should be looking more at understanding how black holes and galaxies grow before we jump to a conclusion like this. Still mystery on top of mystery. Mm -hmm. that, that doll within a doll. It's mm -hmm. just... Is the, is, the, is the chase more exciting than the discovery? Oh, it is so great to have a perplexing question. I mean, we would, we'd be unemployed, right, Priyal, if, if everything was understood. Absolutely. The fun yes. is in the discovery. Yes. Um, I have to tell you, as a scientist, there's nothing more fun than having your own mind blown or your presumptions challenged. It's, it's, it's kind of what we live for. But sometimes we overreach to find something that's too exotic and too exciting, mm. and uh, maybe the world's more pedestrian than that. Until you find out it was true. <laughs> and, and that dark energy is exactly <laughs> the example. Because people thought dark energy was outlandish, right? And um, and it's persisted. Let's go to Mark in South uh, Saint Paul, Minnesota. Hi, Mark. Hi. Hi there. Go ahead. I have a bit of a uh, ponderance here. I've been thinking about. Uh, you know of Einstein's uh, thought experiments? Sure. You have one for us. Well, it goes like this. You have a fish, be either a whale shark or a minnow in the middle of the Pacific. Now a minnow, being small as it is, could swim for its entire life and never hit either the bottom, the surface, or the shore. But does it really understand what the ocean is? It swims through it, it breathes it, it defecates and all that exists in it, but it doesn't really understand what the ocean is. Question is, is space our ocean? We don't really understand. Well, I... Okay. We don't we don't know how to measure it or anything else. Is in many regards, scientists have been saying that over eighty percent of the universe is missing in matter. What if space is dark matter? Okay, that's uh, Ferial. What if space is dark matter? Could that be? Well, I'm I, I, I'm I'm going to go to the minnow and the ocean example. Good, good. Um, does this minnow have p powerful telescopes uh, with which it can collect light from all parts of the ocean, or at least all the visible parts of the ocean, and a framework in which to interpret it? So, it is true that we are tiny, not even a, a speck of dust in the universe, but somehow uh, we've evolved to a point where. We make these powerful tools, not just to, you know, to use on Earth, but also to study our environment with and reach information that is very, very far away from us. And these are the powerful telescopes that we rely on as astrophysicists. Mm -hmm. And we collect that information from different parts of this, this ocean um, that we live in, and uh, we try to make sense out of it. So. I'm, I'm not claiming that we have made sense out of everything. In fact, there are more unsolved problems than solved ones. But 
we we are not really just a little fish. Quick, China. Yeah, just quickly. I think what uh, we have done with things like our telescopes is extend <clears throat> our senses well beyond the fact that we're minnows, and that what is what's so extraordinary. We're collecting light that our eyes can't see, and we're understanding things that are well beyond our immediate experience. You have the last word, Dr. Jana Levin, author of Black Hole Survival Guide, professor. Uh, of Astronomy at Barnard College in New York, Dr. Ferial Ozell, Professor and Chair of Physics, Georgia Institute of Technology in Atlanta. Always fun to talk. Always fun. To talk about dark stuff with you. Thank you for taking time to be with us today. (laughs) So nice to be here, Ira. Ira. You're welcome. Here's Kyle Marin Viterbo with some of the folks who helped make this show happen. Our radio producers are Kathleen Davis, Shoshana Buxbaum, and Rasha Aridi. Diana Plasker is our Experiences Manager. Our controller is Beth Ramey. And I'm community manager Kyle Marion Viterbo. Thanks for listening. Oh, thank you, Kyle. I wanted to jump in to say that we're going to be missing you. This is your last week with Science Friday, your intelligence and wit and finesse with social media. We're going to miss your warmth and stand-up comedy stylings. And we're going to wish you luck on your next journey. So stay in touch. That's, that's about all the time we have for this hour. B.J. Liederman composed our theme music. I'm Ira Flato.